Now, if you will turn this evening to this sixth chapter of Esther. Remember that last week we spent our time upon the first two divisions of the book of Esther. We have already spoken <clears throat> from what we have already learned from the book of Esther. You know it's the most Gentile document in the Bible. The most Gentile in atmosphere, most Gentile in phraseology, most Gentile in customs. It's because of its almost Gentile origin from the fact that it hardly mentions the things of God, the city of God, the word of God, the law of God, the name of God, the word God. Because it hardly mentions anything that we are accustomed to in the rest of Scripture, its place in the Scriptures has often been questioned, both by the rabbis and by the early church fathers. But I think we have begun to discover, when we strip the book of Esther, of so much of, a, I'm afraid, our earliest conceptions of it, we begin to discover that we have one of the most remarkable stories and, in some ways, until we find the key and the message of this book, one of the most remarkable problems in the whole Bible. <clears throat> For we find in the Bible that whilst the rest of Scripture so far, and indeed uh, that which succeeds the book of Esther, spends its time and is at much pains to try and to teach us and to instruct us in certain principles uh, of God, the book of Esther seems to contradict what the rest of Scripture teaches. And indeed, not only does it seem to contradict it, but it would seem to suggest that God is very, very much in the contradiction. That is the problem of the book of Esther. Ezra and Nehemiah spend all their time divorcing people, uh, foreign husbands and foreign wives, and sending them back to their countries. Whereas the book of Esther teaches, shows us that God here is found arranging the marriage of Esther with one of the most uh, profligate Pers of the Persian kings. We could say much, much else about the book of Esther. It is a most remarkable book. And when stripped of so much of our Sunday school uh, conceptions of it, and we get right down to business, which I'm afraid very few uh, Christian Christians have really be seemingly been able to do its remarkable for instance, that when you look at some of the commentaries on the book of Esther, the lengths to which commentators go to get round some of the difficulties is really almost funny. Uh, frightened to death of really facing the truth. Uh, that is so uh, unfortunately stated by the Holy Spirit himself. And then again, it's even funnier when, if you, those of you who would like to look at it, you take up your Septuagint version of the Old Testament and read it there, you will be amazed at the changes that were made. When the old uh, Jewish scholars, the old Jewish rabbis in Alexandria, some 100, 200 years before the Lord Jesus was born, to, to, came to the translation of the, of the Old Testament into Greek, but the Greeks of the exile, uh, they found it so embarrassing that this book didn't mention the things of God, and so that they decided there and then to um, make up for the, for the absence. The result is that in the Septuagint we have a very, very elaborated version of what we have here with Professor. So that's something we can't, of course, spend this evening, otherwise we shall find we will need another evening on Esther, going back all over things, much as I would like to, because as you know, the basis of teaching is reiteration. And um, some lessons we can learn by only the thing being reiterated and reiterated and reiterated till at last somehow other day enters into us that it's right, <clears throat> that it's there. Well, here you've got the book of Esther. It is the last word in the record of sacred history. That is, with the book of Esther, the divine record of Old Testament history is at an end. There is no more record of history now until the days of John the Baptist. And this is all the more interesting, that, the, that we should have found the book of Esther at the end uh, of Old 
logic theory doesn't belong to the end. Uh, Nehemiah belongs uh, to the, the final end. But here we've got the book of Esther. Well, we found the division was into three. We found that the book of Esther teaches us that there are two realms. God's people are divided quite distinctly in the mind and in the eyes of God. Here in the book of Esther, <clears throat> in a natural, geographical way, into two clear-cut realms. One we call the land, the other we call the exile. What God does with his people in, in the land is entirely different to the way he, he uh, reacts and the way he rules and the way he governs his people in the exile. This is the most remarkable fact of these three books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. We find that God seems to have two entirely different sets of rules. And he deals with his people here, in the city, in the land, in an entirely different way to the way that he deals with them there. Now, you will remember the first study we took on the book of Esther, we were at great pains to show you in the book of Esther how entirely different it is in every single way, and how, and this is what the world has taken up and flung at the Christian through the centuries, how God seemingly contradicts himself. In the same era of world history, he's doing one thing there and the exact opposite there. He's teaching one thing there and the exact opposite there. He allows this there and rules it out there. There it has the severest penalties attached to it. Here, it's not only not got any penalties attached to it, but the Lord himself is arranging the thing. How strange, you see? No wonder people in the world have flung this at us as being inconsistent. But it has, within that very, very uh, uh, seeming contradiction, that is the key to the whole matter. Well, we found that there it's divided into three. The first, of the, the first two chapters of Esther deal, teach us the sovereignty of God determining things before the event. Do you remember how remarkable we found that? In this realm, the realm of the exile, God is there in a hidden way. He is for his people, but not among his people. He is not revealing himself. He is there in a veiled way. And you remember, again in the first study that we took, we discovered the name of God in acrostic form, in acrostics, at four points in, in the Hebrew text in this book. A most remarkable fact. The name of God is not mentioned once in the whole book of Esther, yet it's there. And it cannot be coincidence that it's there. There are far too many remarkable things about those acrostics. Uh, that rule out any coincidence at all. It was there by design. What does that teach us? It teaches us that in this realm, God is present in a veiled way, in a sovereign way. And so we found that the key to this book is the sovereignty of God, or the sovereign grace of God, however you like to put it. Uh, the, the problem it deals with is the problem we face today. Why does God use some things? Why does he bless some things? Why does he take up some things? We would say, some of us would say, well, the Lord has led me along certain lines, I couldn't possibly ask for any, any money. And yet we know some organizations that appeal for money, beg for money, and the Lord seems at times to greatly bless them and use them. Now we say, wow, if the Lord has led me this way, that can't be right. Yet the Lord seems to lead that and bless them. And we can give a thousand and one illustrations of this problem. Why does the Lord, is it, why is the Lord at such great pains to lead us along that path, to teach us that this is right, to, to not allow us to go back, otherwise the most severe things seem to happen. And yet there, just across the way, as it were, you find the exact opposite, haven't the Lord seemingly blessing, using, taking up, and so on, when we can't understand it. Why, why, why? This seeming contradiction. Well, here we have it, the sovereignty of God, determining things before the event. Um, here in this realm there's tragedy about to take place and long, long before ever that tragedy comes to its uh, inaction uh, we find that uh, uh, the Lord is counteracting it, determining it um, many people have asked, quite a few people have asked me about what I said last week about the Lord engineering the divorce of Vashti but it's a, <coughs> it's a fact whether the Lord's for divorce, I'm not saying for divorce at all by that, but he certainly engineered the divorce of Vashti. You've got the most remarkable fact that there the Lord is 
engineering the circumstances that lead to the deposition of Vashti in order to make way for the enthronement of Esther. <clears throat> Even if he didn't, the whole point remains that Esther married a divorcee in that uh, matter. You see the strange thing, it all seems so wrong, doesn't it? But there we are, we've got, we've got uh, uh, something that we're on to something, we put it that way. Uh, the Lord is determining these things before ever Esther, Mordecai, Ahasuerus, or anyone else knew. Even Haman didn't know what he was going to do at that point. He had no idea what he was going to do. <coughs> but long before the events take place, everything is being shifted, everything is being worked out. And then the second point we found was in the chapters 3, 4, and 5, the next three chapters of Esther, we found the event itself is described. And the event is, in this connection, in this book, it is the annihilation, the complete annihilation of the people of God. The plan was very carefully laid, and time, the exact date, the decree was made, which of course being a, a royal Persian decree could not be altered or changed, it was made, Everything was settled. It was going to be the complete annihilation of every Jewish man, woman, and child. The thing had been perfectly, beautifully planned and timed. We learned some big lessons then from these two divisions of the book of Esther. And we learned, first of all, that God in his sovereignty is found in this realm working long before things happen for the deliverance of his children wherever they are, whatever their condition, however ignorant they be, just because they are his own people. Now, if we could only get free of our own limited narrowness, which rules out any child of God unless they see what we see or unless they're on the ground that we're on, God will deliver any child of his in any realm whatsoever, in Christendom or outside of Christendom, just because they are his children. It has always been so that everyone has shut out everyone else. Whether it's been the Puritans that shut out the Quakers, or whether it was the Anglicans who shut out the Methodists, or whether it's the Protestants who uh, intended to shut out completely the Roman Catholic, whatever it is, you will find that there's always been this exclusiveness to some degree about in the whole realm of Christendom as such. But the point is this, and there are facts to prove it, however uncomfortable they are when people face them, whatever their prejudices, whatever their biases, whatever their preoccupation, the point is this, we can, we can show you that the Lord is found in some of the most remarkable places and in the most remarkable organizations on this earth. Really. I wish sometimes that Brother Lee had really told us a little bit more of some of the things he has seen and investigated. I think it would have, some people's eyebrows would have uh, shot up. They would have been very, very, very surprised that you could find Christians in such a thing as that, or such a thing as that, but they were, you see. And the Lord will meet those people, he will provide for them, he will bless them, he will bring them into gracious experiences of himself just because they are his own people. So if we can only learn that, we've learned one of the biggest lessons we can, we can learn. You can't get involved in anything which is being blessed. You can't go and involve yourself in anything that the Lord is not leading you that way. He may not be leading you that way. And you cannot, for the sake of your own life, you can commit spiritual suicide, as it were, in getting involved in such a such a thing. You see, that is the problem. On the one side, if we don't see eye to eye, we shut them out. Or the other is we get involved with anything that's being blessed. Or anything that seems to have some experience of the Lord, some spark of life. We can't do it. The book of Esther is our criterion. It is our great yardstick, really, for every situation uh, that we can find. Do you see the point? Uh, on the one hand, 
absolute unity in the sense that the Lord is with every child of his wherever they're found. Just because they're his seed. That's all. Good old Quaker word. His seed. The seed of God. Just because they are the seed of God, he's absolutely loyal to them. Absolutely faithful to them. He will not forsake them and will not let them go. On the other side, just because the Lord won't let them go, we can't uh, join forces with, with nor does the Lord join forces with it. He's for them, but not necessarily among them. So there is the biggest lesson we can learn from that. Another lesson we have learned is simply that Satan had a bitter, bitter, insidious, and an undying hatred of the seed of God. It doesn't matter whether they're on the right ground or whether they're off the right ground, whether they're compromised or whether they're backslidden. Satan hates the child of God. And to put that into any more uh, firm and more vivid language, I can't do but to use the word hate. That's all. Satan's hatred is unbelievable. And many foolish Christians, as I said last week, they think that if they go back into the world, they'll get onto the right side of Satan. They go back and they'll give them a wonderful time. Pat them on the back and treat them like good friends. Be their friend. Don't you believe it? Satan may for a while seemingly do a lot of things and may mollycoddle those that are on the way out or on the way back or going into compromise. But he's only doing it with one end to destroy with the vilest venom. To destroy anything that's of the Lord Jesus there. And oh, if you could have dealt or seen with some of the back that we have seen that are being literally smashed up and torn apart. You see? Oh, Satan hates the seed of God. He will destroy a person physically because the Lord Jesus himself said that, that he can't touch the spirit. But he'll destroy everything else he can lay his hands on if he can. He hates the seed of God so. And this is evidence for it. Here are the people of God. They're right out of God's will. They're right out of God's purpose. They don't effect the coming of the Messiah. They weren't part of building the house of God, which, in which God's whole heart and purpose center. And yet you see, Satan hates them. He's planning their complete annihilation just because there's something of God in them. You see? It is a most remarkable. And we have to learn again a very, very big lesson. And the other lesson is simply this, that when they cry to the Lord, I'm afraid it's not because they're concerned about his honor or his name, they're concerned about their preservation. But mark you, the Lord answers their cry. He will always answer the cry. In fact, he will reduce his people in, in, in that realm to crying. Then he will answer them. Revivals have again and again been just this simple thing. That's all. God absolutely sovereignly in the most wonderful way answering the cry of his people out of reduced circumstances. When they've been brought right down to absolutely nothing, people have cried to the Lord and he's met them. Always. And will always. It's the most remarkable thing. Book of Esther is the story of the most remarkable movement of the Spirit of God upon his own, to deliver them, to save them, and to lift them up into a new uh, sphere of service. All in exile. All in exile. What a remarkable thing this is. So, you see, we learn, we've learned some very big lessons. Now, <clears throat> tonight, we, we come to this great point, that God sovereignly intervening and turning the evil into deliverance and salvation. God sovereignly intervenes. Now we come to tonight, tonight, this part, this point of the story, where God himself actually intervenes. Now, you remember last week we were taking first the story, then the lessons. Well, now, what is the story uh, of the intervention of God? Well, you will, I think, remember it quite, quite simply if we run over it. It is first of the first thing uh, in the last six chapters, from, uh, from that chapter 6, I'm sorry, to chapter 10, um, you, will, you will find in chapter 6 the story of Mordecai's 
honouring. The honouring of Mordecai. You remember exactly what happened. Last week we left um, them all having a banquet. Do you remember? Well, not all of them. It was Haman and the, and the king and Esther. You remember she was very wise. She didn't make a petition then. She said, well, look, I have one petition. It's simply this. Will you come back tomorrow night and have another banquet, have another big meal with us? They said yes, they would. Haman went home. He was absolutely elated. Just think of it. He'd been lifted right up to the highest position in the realm. And now he had been asked to dine with the king, the emperor of the, of the, of the Persian Empire, alone with the queen, and had been asked again for the second time running the very next day to again dine with the queen and the king of the queen alone. He went home very elated. He saw old, dear old Mordecai in the gate. Mordecai still refused to get up, still refused to bow, and this was the thing that began, you remember, all the trouble, and it infuriated him. He went home and he began to recount everything to his wife and to all the friends that were there, telling them all about what had happened. No doubt they wanted to know all the details, exactly what was there, how what they'd eaten, and everything else about the surroundings. He began to tell them the whole lot, and at the end, he just mentioned his hatred for that man, Mordecai. He said, as I left that man, didn't even stand up. <laughs> Here am I, dining alone with, with the king and the queen, and that man still refuses to acknowledge me as his superior. So the story goes that they talked with him, and they said, well, why not make some gallows? You're in such favor, obviously, that tomorrow, what in Mordecai, I to the king. All you've got to do is when you go tomorrow, just say to the king, you want Mordecai hanged? You think he's a, a menace? And uh, you'll have it. So all through the night. Now, mark you, the, the, the dramatic nature of this story is, is quite remarkable. All through the night, the gallows were erected. Those gallows, believe it or believe it not, were something like 70 feet high. And uh, well, later on, 10 people were hanged on them at once. So they must have been pretty high. In fact, in the Feast of Purim, the Jew has always had a star, uh, each one, to mark the 10 sons that were hanged in position of each one uh, down the gallows. Rather gruesome, but still, there you are. They've commemorated it ever since, and to this day they still commemorate it. Um, the point of the story, as far as we're concerned, is this, that those gallows were being made all through the night in, Hamer, in, in Haman's garden. So, you know what happened. In another part of the royal city, the king couldn't sleep. A somewhat remarkable thing, we might think, that he couldn't <coughs> sleep. No doubt he tried every single means of getting to sleep, but he couldn't sleep. And as far as we can make out from the story, he tried to sleep, and he tried to sleep, and he tried to sleep. Hour after hour, flitted away, until at last he thought well, the best thing to do is to have something read to him. A rather strange thing that he asked for the chronicles to be read to him. And while they were being read to him, suddenly, I suppose, round about the dawn of the day, um, they came to this point of Mordecai. Do you remember last week what we said about Mordecai? How he had overheard in the gate a plot being hatched to assassinate the king? How he had mentioned it to Esther? How Esther had intervened? How there had been an investigation? How it had been proved correct? And how those two men had been hung? Mordecai had never, ever received any reward whatsoever or any recognition of his, for his services. And when the, uh, the chronicles were read out, uh, they came to this uh, 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 heading. Uh, they, the king just simply asked whether it was, was there anything to be done to Mordecai. There was nothing to be done at all. And evidently, according to the story, not much else happened except that the king heard someone in the court asked who it was. Yeah, it was Haman. Haman had come to ask that Mordecai be hanged upon the gallows that he be, that he had already laid. And you know, when the king asked him in, he just said, "Well, Haman was second to the king." He just said to Haman, "Haman, what would you do to the man that I, I wish I would like to honour?" Naturally. When self is in charge, we always take everything for ourselves when self is in charge. There's not a thin, most harmless thing can be said against ourselves that are either being digged at or uh, sort of stroked or uh, admired or something. Anyway, uh, Haman thought it was himself. And so he falls very beautifully into a trap. 
prepared by God. Haman begins to say what he thinks should be done, obviously thinking of himself. You can imagine that. Thinking of himself riding in pomp, the king's greatest prince, leading him ahead in everywhere and so on, and then the whole of his fairy castles crashed to the ground. The king says, now you go and do exactly what you said, and don't leave anything out of what you said to Mordecai the Jew that sits at the gate. The king had no idea that Haman was there to ask that Mordecai might be hanged on the gallows that had been being made all through the night. But there you are, the truth is stranger than fiction. And you know the end of that story, how poor Haman had to do all this to Mordecai and lead him through the streets, shouting before, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. The next thing we find about the story, of course, is the banquet. This is all the more remarkable. Poor Haman no sooner gets home, recounts everything to his wife, than the chamberlain of the waiting there with something or other to carry him to the, uh, to the court. Back for the banquet. He goes straight into the banquet. You know what happens. It's toward the end of the banquet. Esther suddenly says, Now, now, uh, about that thing I wanted to ask you, that you asked me yesterday to tell you, I want to tell you now. And then it all comes out into the open. She reveals for the first time that she's a Jewess. She reveals for the first time what is happening to her own people. And then you know, the king begins to get angry about the whole thing. He says, who on earth would dare to lay a finger on you? And, of course, the, the gains, the dramatic nature of the whole story, she suddenly says, this man. That was the end. Well, we know from history that Xerxes was given to the most terrible fits of rage. And it's one of the remarkable little incidents that show the... Uh, authenticity of the story, that the king, instead of dramatically getting up and saying, take the man out, sort of business, um, was so full of rage that all he could do, because he couldn't control himself, was to go out into the garden, into the cool. That's all he could do. But the king's servants knew full well what was going to happen. That's quite obvious, before, because when he came back, you know, it says they were already putting something over the face of Haman. They knew full well that when the king got angry like that, uh, it was the end for the persons he was angry with. So the story goes that the servants mentioned to the king that Haman, and the king evidently still didn't know why, had built very big gallows in his garden. That was quite enough for the king, so that's all right, hang them on them. So we find that the gallows that Haman had built to hang Mordecai, he himself was hanged upon. What a remarkable thing the whole thing was. Well, that's the story. Then the story goes on to the king's former decree. If you look to chapter, um, I think it's chapter 8, <coughs> uh, chapter 9, 8 and, and 9, um, you find there the story moves very swiftly. You see, here's the problem. Now, just get this clearly, because it's very remarkable. You see, a decree had been made by the king and sealed with the king's seal. And according to Persian law, no decree made by the king and sealed with his rings could ever be altered or amended. Now, the, the decree made was that on the 13th day of the 12th month, every Jewish man, woman, and child would be annihilated or shall we put it this way, was at the mercy of any who wished to annihilate, destroy them, and take their property. In other words, it was like an open check. The king just gave leave to all his uh, subject peoples to do what they liked with the Jew. And as you know, the Jew was, of course, as always, uh, the most prosperous element and factor in the, in, in the life of the empire. So, of course, the greedy eyes had looked towards Jewish property and Jewish business and planned for that day. Now, here was the problem. Although Haman was hanged on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai, no one on earth could change the decree that had been made. That was the problem. You got more Haman out of the way, but what could you do about the decree? It, wasn't, it was impossible. Even history itself teaches us that one of the oddest things about the, the Persian Empire, and particularly about the Persian court, was the fact that it wouldn't change. 
anyone of his Lord, even when a stupid one was made. Everyone suffered. A remarkable thing. So now, Esther and Mordecai were presented with one of the prickliest problems and difficulties that anyone could ever have had given to them. How do you amend, change, or counter that something that, uh, by law, you're not allowed to change or amend or counteract? The king gave to Esther because she wept before him. Uh, he gave her his ring. He put Mordecai, when he found out who Mordecai was and what he'd done for Esther, he, he, he put uh, Mordecai in the place of Haman. He gave to Queen Esther the whole of Haman's property. Now, Haman was a very wealthy man. It can be, it can be seen by the fact that he was prepared to pay for the annihilation of the Jews almost a third of the income of, uh, of the taxes of the, of the empire. He was an exceedingly wealthy man. The whole of his property was given over to um, uh, Esther. It was the uh, policy in the Persian Empire when a person was executed for a crime to confiscate his property. That was handed over to Esther. Mordecai was in the place of Haman. Now they started to think, what do we do? Then they issued decrees. They told the king about it. They got his assent to it. They sealed it with his ring, and the decree was proclaimed, which meant that there was another decree that couldn't be changed. This decree was simply this, a very clever one, I must say, that every single Jew in the Persian Empire, on the 13th day of the 12th month, was at liberty to defend himself, his property, and his children. That was all. That was sufficient. With Mordecai as the equivalent of the Prime Minister, and Esther as Queen, and it known throughout the Persian Empire that she was a Jewess and he was a Jew, that was all that was needed. Support for the plot to murder every Jew melted away rapidly. And indeed, if you read in chapter 9, I think or it's the end of chapter 8, Many people became Jews. All over the empire, uh, people became Jews, Jewish proselytes. And furthermore, all officials, of, officials of the government and administration threw in their lot with the Jews. The result was that although the first decree couldn't be changed, now it had been completely counteracted. And when the 13th day came of the 12th month, of course, as uh, is so obvious. It was a day of terrible uh, rioting and bloodshed. Uh, the point was the Jew was allowed to defend himself. He did defend himself. And uh, he was helped by the local officials everywhere to defend himself. But this is the point. The day of their destruction became the day of their triumph. The day when they would have mercilessly been wiped out became the day when they came into a position of eminence and honor. The result was that those who had such an undying antagonism for them died uh, that day. Well, the last two parts uh, points in these chapters, chapter 9 and the very small little chapter 10, deal with just this, uh, first of all, they deal with Mordecai's greatness, uh, the greatness, the prosperity, the honor of the Jew. Uh, the Jew came to take a place in the Persian Empire uh, at the end of Xerxes' reign that was remarkable. Mordecai, Mordecai became greater and greater and greater. The man waxed greater and greater. And then it also tells us that there was a feast established. It was called the Feast of Purim, or simply the word Purim means Lot, the Feast of Lot, which goes back to the way that Haman found out the exact time to destroy the Jews. You remember they cast lots 
day after day, month after month, until they settled on a certain day uh, for their destruction. This feast of Purim was established then and has been kept rigidly ever since by every good Jew. The two days, the 14th and the 15th day of the 12th month of the Jewish calendar, is still to this day kept as the feast of Purim to remember the remarkable deliverance in the days past. Now then, that's the story. <clears throat> what are the lessons? What real lessons can we learn from the, from the story? The first lesson we learn is this. God, in his sovereignty, knows the exact point at which to intervene. He never intervenes early. He never intervenes late. He always intervenes at the exact point when it's most likely to be effective. It is, most, it is most interesting in the story that whereas we have seen God in his foreknowledge working before the event ever came to pass to counteract it, he never intervenes until, until the point had been reached of the, of the, most, of the utmost danger. I mean, um, I suppose you would call it utmost danger when you think that all through the night gallows were being hammered. Uh, up and into position, all through the night they were going up, huge great gallows, and there was that man Mordecai probably peacefully asleep, little knowing that by morning night he was meant to uh, ornament the gallows. That's what was happening. <coughs> Remarkable thing. The Lord never directly intervened until that night, and that night he wouldn't let the king sleep. <laughs> I have no doubt about it at all. The Lord was there himself uh, to keep King Ahasuerus awake that night. He didn't sleep. Uh, he's been today, but still not have slept with every kind of modern thing to put him to sleep. Uh, the, king kept, the Lord kept the king awake. The word is simply his sleep fled from him. It fled from him. <laughs> it just went. He couldn't find it. Whatever he did, he couldn't find it. The Lord kept that man awake. The whole deliverance of the people of God depended on the sleeplessness of the king and keeping the king sleepless. You know, if the king had been kept awake for a few hours and then two hours off to sleep, all would have been lost. It was because the Lord kept him awake for so long that in the end he said, what's the use of it? Let someone send me to sleep. As some dear commentator once said, nothing like some boring chronicles uh, to, to send anyone to sleep. Can you just imagine it? Some courtier sitting by droning on and on and on. Of all the things, I mean, it is rather amusing, isn't it, when you think of all the things for the king to ask to be read to him. Whether, whether it is humorous or not, I have not the faintest idea. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if there isn't a little bit of divine humor in that. It seems, it always did seem a strange thing to me that, that the king should want to hear that kind of uh, bedtime story. It just doesn't uh, uh, add up, does it, anywhere in the world, at any particular point of world history, that someone should want some dry and dusty civil service document taken out and it's all read. But obviously the poor man wanted to get to sleep. And as I say, probably the intonation of some half-asleep courtier Droning it out was the best way he thought he could do it. But it was just the Lord's way for the deliverance of his people. That's what keep the man awake until he got desperate. Then let's read the most unlikely thing that you would have thought anyone would have read to get them to sleep. But there it was. It was just that point. Now I have no doubt about it that there must have been dozens of documents that would have been read to the king. But one was one that went back 12 years another remarkable man. 12 years now if there was a diary kept which we which we know there was of day-to-day -day doings and so on of the persian court just imagine the remarkable nature of picking out one particular part of that journal those chronicles <coughs> that dealt with the one particular point at which mordecai had been instrumental in saving the king's life yet it was taken out and it was read to the king because he couldn't sleep. So 
in the early hours of the morning day he was listening for something that had happened 12 years previously or so and nothing had been done about it. What a remarkable thing. I think that teaches us our first lesson. This is the first point in the story of Esther that the Lord directly intervenes. Here it is. He directly intervenes. So we, we learn a tremendous lesson here that the Lord knows the exact point at which to intervene in his people. It doesn't matter whether they're on the right ground or off the right ground, whether they're compromised, backslidden, or where they are. The Lord knows the exact point at which to intervene. The exact point. What a wonderful thing that is for us in prayer, not only for our own situations, not only for the situations of God's people, wherever they're found, but even for those that are compromised or backslidden. What a, what authority we have in prayer when we really, really consider the truth of this uh, book. The Lord knows. He's planned for it. He's worked for it. What do you think he allowed Mordecai to overhear that plot being hatched 12 years before? This was the point to which it was to which it was heading, you see? The whole remarkable thing, all the Lord's sovereignty in action behind the scenes before ever it happened, and now, suddenly, as if the Lord stepped onto the scene himself, he steps in, and the whole thing begins now to unfold. Well, there's not much time. I tell you, the Bible's more thrilling in some ways than these modern murder stories, when you really read it uh, with an unbiased mind, and without all the unfortunate background that sometimes we have, which has dulled the whole thing. What a thrilling thing it is. Just a few hours to go, here comes Haman into the court with one object, to get more decay I hung on the gallows he was made. I say it's the most remarkable thing, isn't it? And then another lesson we can learn from this story is this, the delicate <coughs> balance between God, between God, Sovereign working, on the one hand, and man's cooperation. This, I believe, is one of the problems that has always uh, filled uh, Christians' minds from the year dot. How do we tie up God's sovereignty and man's will? How do we tie up God's sovereign working and man's cooperation? Does God need man's cooperation? God doesn't need, need man's cooperation in one sense. He doesn't. But the remarkable thing is he never moves without man's cooperation. Isn't it remarkable? Here in this story, you find God sovereignly working without relation to any man or woman long before events happen. It's all been worked. But suddenly, at one point in the story, Esther comes. What would have happened if Esther hadn't gone into the king or risked her life? Do you remember last week? How she went in, risked her life. What would have happened if she hadn't? You remember her famous words, if I perish, I perish? It took courage. She knew full well that with a king like King Ahasuerus, if she was on the wrong side of him, or gone on to the wrong side of him, it was the end of Queen Esther. She knew that. No, I tell you, it's the most remarkable thing. It teaches us the, 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 the remarkable... Uh, nature of God's sovereign working and man's cooperation. See how it all works out. I mean, Mordecai couldn't do anything about the gallows. I wonder whether Mordecai wondered what those gallows were if he saw them. Certainly if he heard the hammering, he must have wondered what was going on in Haman's back garden. Earth happened there, he might have thought to himself. Little did he know what was happening to himself. Yet later on, we find the Lord is using Mordecai. <coughs> Do you see, it's this delicate balance. I can't, I can't uh, uh, put my finger upon where exactly the balance is, but <clears throat> there is a most remarkable link between God's sovereign working and man's cooperation. Most remarkable. It's there. It teaches us it. You see? You remember Mordecai's famous words, uh, uh, you may have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's it. For such a time as this, you've come to the kingdom said Mordecai to Esther, at the point of great crisis. You are here, in this place, for such a time as this. All God's sovereignty is behind it, and yet it seems as if God himself is putting himself into the hands of frail flesh and trusting it. 
I never forget that one of the things that Miss Fishbarker left with me two or three times when she said at times she has thought that it is as if God was putting himself bodily into the hands of a man or a woman and trusting them with the biggest issues possible. Sometimes, you know, and I might say that Old Testament history and New Testament history and church history prove what I say, Sometimes the whole of God's eternal purpose hang on, a, on the finest and thinnest thread, and that thread is a man or a woman. Have you ever thought about that? It's a remarkable thing. If Abraham had not gone out, what would have happened? You and I wouldn't be here, that's the point. You perhaps don't realise that. You work it out. Abraham, thousands of years ago, hadn't gone out not knowing where he went, he wouldn't be here. But again and again, you could, I could show you where the whole of, of divine history hung on the slenderest thread. Oh, what remarkable things. Take church history. What, how thrilling church history is, really, when you, when you look into it. You take a man like John Wesley, how the whole of England's future, really, in one sense, was hanging on that one man and his companion with him. So you can go on again. It's as if God himself puts himself into the hands of frail flesh and says, I'm trusting you with the biggest, biggest issues possible. That's God's sovereignty and man's cooperation. God doesn't need to do it. God doesn't need to do it. As dear Mordecai said thousands of years ago, if you don't do it, Esther, someone else will. If you don't do it, relief will come from another quarter. But somewhere the Lord will find one person and into their hand you will put everything. As if everything depended on them. A remarkable fact. Then I want you also to know another great lesson that we might learn about the book, about this last division of the book of Esther. It is this book, and this, is, this to me is one of the most thrilling things about our salvation, and about the Bible, the way in which God always takes the very thing that causes the trouble and by it works deliverance. Have you ever thought of that? It is the most remarkable thing. I thought God was proceeding when talking about everything that's so remarkable. But it is so remarkable. It's the most remarkable thing, the way the Lord takes things. Well, look at this story. Just look at this story. Haman is the instrument the devil's using to wipe out the people of God. Haman is the instrument that the devil is using to wipe out Mordecai. Very well. The Lord takes Haman, and he makes Haman the means by which Mordecai is honored. When Haman came into that court that day, the last thing in his mind was the honor of Mordecai, the glory of Mordecai. Gallows were in his mind for Mordecai. But the Lord used the very mind, the very pride, the very evil in Haman. That proud, arrogant, self-centered spirit, the Lord used that to plan and to work the very honor and glory of his child Mordecai. Now that's what God does, and the world history in the end, when the books are open, will be seen to be just like that. <coughs> All the way through. The thing that has caused uh, so much trouble was the thing that God has taken a hold of and through it has worked his own deliverance. Haman built some gallows. What a remarkable thing that is. But Haman is hanged on his gallows. Do you see? He's hanged on his own gallows that he built for Mordecai. God takes the very thing that caused the trouble to work the deliverance. Haman's out of the way. Well, that's one of them gone anyway. He's right out of the way. And how has he gone? He's been hanged on his own gallows. <laughs> he signed his own death warrant, more or less. Fool that he was to build those gallows. That was the end of him. Do you know it's always happened? The psalmist said that he's, he's fallen into the dig which he pit, which he the, the, he's fallen into the pit which he digged himself. Oh, the words of the psalmist. How true that is! Again and again, 
Another lovely old word in the Psalms, it says, about it coming back upon his own page. Remember that one? Always used to love, you've always used to love that. It came back upon his own page. <coughs> Sin is just like a boomerang, it comes back. So you see, really, what a remarkable story this is. It teaches us a, 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 this amazing principle that God takes the very things that cause the trouble to work the deliverance. But you go farther on. A royal decree is proclaimed for the destruction of every Jewish man, woman, and child. Very well then, by no other means than by a royal decree will their preservation be established. It's the same thing again. One thing for their destruction, the same thing for their preservation. The same seal of the king on his finger that sealed their destruction was the same thing that sealed their preservation. What a remarkable thing is that? The 13th day of the 12th month, which was meant for their destruction and annihilation, became the day of their triumph and their honour. So you see this principle working out right the way through. I wish we could spend a lot of time on this because it's a wonderful thing. You see that the Bible takes it up everywhere. By woman, sin came. Therefore, by woman came the Lord. Sin was the thing that destroyed this world. Very well then. By becoming sin, the Lord Jesus would redeem the world. Do you see it? Flesh was the thing that brought the downfall. Very well then. Flesh will be the thing that will redeem the world. The Lord becoming flesh. So you can work with Oh, this remarkable, this remarkable thing all the way through. Every single point of it. Where man fell is where, man, where God caused man to triumph in the same way same conditions were. Do you see? I remember when we started these studies in the Bible, we took the first three chapters of Genesis, and if I remember rightly, we spent a little time upon this very thing. How exactly on one side you find the very things that have, that have brought the ruin of the world, the fall of the world, are the very means that God sovereignly takes up to work its redemption. Now that, only God could do that. Only God could do that. Many foolish people say, why didn't God pack the whole thing up and begin all over again? Because God is so wise and do things like that. It's far, far best to get down to the mess and out of the mess to bring back order. Then what has he done? He has got a creation then which is learnt by its misery. And never again touch that then. It learnt by it. You see what I mean? That's why the Lord Jesus is the wisdom of God and the power of God. The wisdom of God. His way is not our ways, his thoughts not our thoughts. But you see how wonderful God is. Oh, it's, it's, it's wonderful, really, the way our salvation goes right down to the very point at which we fell. So I think there you see something wonderful in this uh, story of Esther, which should be to our great help and encouragement. The very things that cause the trouble are the very things that God uses to bring honor, prosperity, and increase to his people. Isn't that wonderful? Never be afraid of the devil's assaults, because God will always turn them if you depend on him and cry to him. He will always turn them in the end, even if you've been at fault, once condemned and you tell him he will use those things to honour, prosperity, and increase every time. This is the book of Esther. What a, what a, what an atmosphere. What an atmosphere. An oriental harem, a profligate court, an evil Gentile administration, and the people of God there contradicting everything they've ever known about the Lord God, and yet, yet, the Lord steps in and saves them. And not only saves them, but he leaves them in a position of honour and prosperity. Well, let us learn these things. Well, <clears throat> what do we learn then from, the, from this last division of the book of Esther? We learn this, that it is possible to have a real experience of the Lord, of his blessing, of his provision, of his deliverance, real experiences of him in that realm. 
You see how easy it would have been if we'd been there in those days and we'd gone back to the land and left everything and become like pilgrim fathers, journeyed across thousands of miles of desert to go back to the land. What we would have thought about those people that stayed back there, prosperous. Then they were prosperous. We would have thought, well, they're not worthy to be called Jews. Fancy. We, little minority, a remnant, we've turned, we've given up everything, we're afflicted. Look at us. When they got back, they had to turn a ravaged land into something of beauty. They had to build cities that had been raised to the ground by fire. You see? And then they thought of those people back there with their businesses, back there with their wealth, back there with their influence and everything else. How very nice it was. How many of them must have thought to themselves, I don't know, the Lord can't have much to do with them. That was the beginning of the trouble, you know, between the Jews of the dispersion and the Jews of the, of the homeland. What we came come, come to have called the Hebrews and the Hellenists, this great controversy began. Both tried to exclude the other. Well, it all began there. Well, we do the same, you see, today. They managed it. Well, they've got no experience of God. They've no experience of God. But the Holy Spirit, they said they had. And the book of Esther has been put into the canon to forever underline the fact that they are God's children. And because they are God's children, God will never forsake them. Never. And furthermore, not only will he not forsake them, but they can have the most real and vivid experiences of God. And of everything to do with God, of his provision, of his blessing, of everything. See, they can have it. Esther teaches us that. You couldn't have a more vivid experience of God in one way than the book of Esther tells us. Could you? <laughs> Face death one night and be delivered the next morning. I mean, there's no more vivid and more wonderful thing. But isn't that just what we face today? You see, the, this uh, book, this last division, teaches us simply this, that in his sovereign grace, God makes his own to be great, to be influential, to be prosperous in that realm. He does. In that realm, he will lift up people to the highest places and the most influential places and the most honored places. He will. Just as he had Esther at the very top, just as he had Mordecai at the very top, so even today he can do the same and does do the same in that realm. You see, it teaches us simply that, we, that there is two distinct realms. And really, we have to learn that in that realm, there can be real experience of the Lord's blessing and provision, and not moreover, very real advancement. But, and here's the but, and we must say it without seeking to be censorious in any way, but state a fact in Scripture. Esther, Mordecai, and the whole lot of them there in exile had no bearing whatsoever, whatsoever, on the coming of the Messiah. It's one of the great facts of the Bible. If Esther had died, Mordecai had never lived. Or if they'd all been annihilated in one day, it would not have affected the coming of the Messiah. The Lord Jesus would still have come when he came, and we would still have been here today ourselves. Now, isn't that, a, isn't that a fact? Reflect on it. That's all I ask you to do. Just go away and reflect on it. It simply means this, that here in this wonderful realm, here is God sovereignly working. Here he is long before the event determining things, counteracting it. Here he is intervening at the, at the point of time. Here is all Satan's terrible antagonism toward these children of God. And yet, though they are prosperous, though they're influential, though they've been delivered, though they have an experience of the Lord, they had not one whit of bearing upon the coming of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because they're not in the place where alone the Messiah can come. That's the lesson of this book. And I believe that's the greatest corrective that we need. On the one side, as I said at the very first study we took on the book of Esther, to narrow 
dogma and prejudiced outlook, which would narrow God's working down to one's own realm entirely. And on the other side of that, that foolish, sentimental non-discernment, which would get itself involved in anything but you being dead. Book of Esther's here to teach us just that. God is for them. God gives great experiences. God delivers them. God saves them. God provides for them. God makes them prosper. And yet, what is the last word? What is the ultimate word? The ultimate word is they had no bearing on the eternal purpose of God. They were not an integral part in the coming of the Messiah. That's the last word. So, there you are. What is the message of the book of Esther? The message of the book of Esther is a remarkable one. Here, everything that we've been taught in all the other books that so far we have studied is contradicted. And not only is it contradicted, but we find that God does not merely allow contradiction. He blesses them. But he doesn't only bless them. He uses them. And I don't think I'm going too far when I say God arranges them. Wow. That's the book of Esther. If you want any more, I'll tell you a few more in private. Because it's not so easy to speak about. If you want a few more contradictions that are here in the book of Esther. They're there. Wow, 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 wow. So this is the message of the book of Esther. What a strange thing. What is it? If you get down to the reason why God blesses and uses contradictions in the book of Esther, which he absolutely severely judges in all the other books, you've got the key to the whole problem. And you've got the key to the 20th century as well. You've got a key to the whole thing. A contradictory and complex situation is explained by the Book of Esther. It just simply reveals that there are these two realms. One is the land, one is the exile. What God does in one, he doesn't necessarily do in the other. How he deals with you in one is not how he deals with you in the other. The principles that govern one are entirely different to the principles that govern the other. How the Lord reveals himself to you in one is not the way you will find the Lord in the other. Two entirely different realms altogether. What the Lord would never touch in one, he touches in the other. What he would never bless but judge and remove in one, he takes out and arranges in the other. Can you understand it? No wonder some people scratch their heads and think, can this really be the truth? But if you study this, you will find it to be absolutely true. I have no fear whatsoever. You study it. The more deeply you study it, the more you will find what I say is absolutely true. Well, then, then what does this mean? What does this mean? We can never make what the Lord blesses and what the Lord uses and what the Lord even arranges in the exile, the criterion, for the land. Never. You are one with the people of God. You love the people of God. You can pray for the people of God. You can watch them being blessed. You can watch them being used. You can watch the Lord arranging them. I have no doubt about it. Some people used to say to me years ago, when someone came forward and said they'd been called to such and such a society, some people used to say to me, I can't believe the Lord would call them to that society. Can't be. Just couldn't be. But you know, when you went to the person and talked with them, you could only sit down and say, well, I don't know what's gone wrong. But this person's definitely been called to this weird society. Well then, what's up? What's happened? What the Lord does there? You can't make the criteria for yourself. The Lord does call people into things. The Lord does use things. The Lord does provide for things. The Lord does arrange for things which in actual fact are not in his thought and mind whatsoever as at all at all. But he'll use them, he'll bless them, take care of them in that realm. But you will try to, to settle that up here, sort of thing, in, this, in the land, and you'll find the Lord will pulverize 
absolutely pulverized and pulverized you too. Because you see, you you can't you've got to observe an order. Confusion. Mixture. You can't do it. Oh, if we could only learn this this wonderful lesson of this book of Esther. At the end of a dispensation. End of a dispensation. God's last word is the book of Esther. We are at the end of a dispensation. We are the people of God. The people of God at the end of this dispensation are found in two clearly distinct realms. One is the realm of Christendom. The other is what we call the church. How God deals with us in one is entirely different to how he deals with us. What he blesses, uses, and takes up in one, he will not touch, but rather judge and remove in the other. Strangely enough. That's the explanation. You go home now and read and study this book alongside of Ezra and Nehemiah and see whether these things are not truly true.